You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Bracken, are you getting like, we're on like day three of rain here. Oh, us too. Dude, this trail race this weekend is going to be just... Oh, that's this weekend. Yeah. Kirk's got a, what, what is it, 17? The Zumbro 17? It's like a 17 and a half, 17 and a half, we'll, we'll, we'll call it. I know. It's real technical on the Superior Trail, and last year it was a muddy mess, and we were talking that this year it won't be so bad, and this week we've had nothing but rain in the Midwest, so it's going to be a muddy mess again. Yeah, it's what we're getting here, too. There's a, last night they hit us with, like, not the tornado, whatever one's the worst one, like, not... Not where we think there's going to be one, but when there's one, you need to watch out for it. A warning. Warning, yeah. Tornado warning. One of them is yeah. called like a watch. All right. It's confusing. This is how I live my life. Right here. Under construction. There we are. I'm done. Is my signal better? Nope. <laughs> I'm like over the router. <laughs> That's all right. We'll do what we can. Yeah, we can make it work. All right. It'll work just fine. It'll probably catch up as we move on here. Yeah. Oh, give me one second. So what are you going to go with shoe-wise now? The Scots, still. Yeah. I've only got one run in them, but... Too bad the Extreme 3 is not there yet. Three? Extreme 2. <laughs> I was like, is there a 3? Am I that far behind? It's tough because the IROC's on the 3. The Extreme is on the 2. Right. And everything else yeah. is on the 1. Yeah, I think I'll go Scots. So I live up in uh, up on a hill too. So like, um, we're lucky to even have Wi-Fi. They said, period. Really? So I'm sure it's just all all me, all on my end. No, it's it's a little better now. Good. Well, I'm all set. I got my water. I'm good. Well, good. Bracken, uh, be a gentleman and introduce us. Well, we're Justin Hamilton here. Because I feel like you two know each other. Yeah, don't you know him and I don't? We have one of those relationships where we spent probably a total of 10 minutes over the course of six hours, but since it was at a race on a hill, we've got like six years of bonding. Yeah. Built yeah, yeah, up yeah. There. yeah, we I told my wife, I was like, Bracken, we would have a conversation. Every time he would fly by me, we'd get a few sentences out. And then he'd come back around and we'd get we'd finish, you know, we'd have a whole conversation over six hour period. <laughs> so I met Justin at the Tennessee mile this last year. And he was one of the, one of the few people out there who is going after it. A lot of people are out there. Like we talked about in that episode, they're there to experience it or to find something about themselves. And not that we weren't, but he and I were both out there with a goal in mind that was mileage based. He wanted to set the record for his distance. I wanted to set the record for mine. We both had paces we were focused on. And you could see that when I was coming around, there was a very big difference between people who are out there just to complete the time and those who are working with purpose. And he was working with purpose. So we started chatting it up a little bit and he was in it and I was in it, but he was super positive and he's always getting me fired up as I went by. And I think that we kind of fed off each other. And then right after that, I started following him on social media. And I realized he lives off in the sticks. He's putting himself out there doing big training runs, experimenting with stuff on himself, doing crazy volume. I was holding on to the stairs, the stair rail for two weeks after the race. 
He was out a day or two later getting an easy eight or 10 in because he had a 200 mile race coming up. He's just, he's living it day in and day out. And it, I feel like it's time to just chat this all through. I appreciate that, Bracken. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You, you were a big component to my race out there. It's cool to see people out on course and chat with them, but there is an extra added boost when someone's getting after it next to you. And you have that shared, like, we're out here for more than just completion here. And that was, that always gave me a little bit of boost to, all right, get my form back together, attack the next downhill. So even though we don't know each other well, like we said, we probably never talked for longer than 30 seconds at one clip, but yeah, we went through that together to some extent. Yeah, man. So I must ask then, Bracken won't stop bragging about his win. He just won't <laughs> stop about it. So does that mean that you took second behind Bracken? Well, well, I got lucky. So Brack, I was telling, I was explaining this to my wife. I was trying to explain Bracken's uh, fitness compared to mine. Uh, when they're just two, they don't parallel. They're just different. And I was like, so I would never in my life attempt what Bracken attempted to, to, to break the six hour. Um, because to me, that would be running too fast. Hmm. Uh, so I went after the 24 hour record and, Oh, you were out there for 24. Got it. Yeah. yeah. That's why I said he was in it. Like <laughs> oh. I was doing something much different than what he was doing. Respect. Yeah. It's, it's just like a completely different level of, I mean, it's like trying to, you know, match surfing with marathon running. It's just two different athletes. Um, and, uh, so I did win. Yeah. I won the 24 hour event. I broke the record by, I think five miles. And uh, they do it by loops is how they count it. And uh, I believe I did 70, 73 loops, and that was a, for, good for about 85 miles, I believe it was. Don't quote me on those. It was around 85 miles. And uh, the crazy part was was the gain. It was almost 30,000 feet of gain. It was, it was very close to 30K. Wow, congratulations. Thank you, man. Thanks. Yeah, it was good. But what, like Bracken said, when he would come around – there was one more guy in the 40 or there was a gal and a guy in the 40 hour that were mm-hmm. getting after it in their own way. Uh, again, a different level of athlete, even pa- like, you know, past me. Was she the one that wasn't talking though? Yeah. Was she the machine? Yes. Yes. She, Meg, Meg, she's a, she's an AT Appalachian trail, uh, phenomenon, dude. Like her and uh, her friend who was out there pacing her they're um, they have a page called like adventure Appalachian trail adventure or something. But they're doing the entire Appalachian Trail uh, together in pieces on weekends as mothers. And they just like they're up in Maine right now, I think, man, like they're they're getting it in. Uh, But yeah, so she she ended up crushing the 40 hour Meg. Um, But yeah, so seeing y'all come around every time when you left Bracken, it was sad for me um, for sure. But then I counted on those 40 hour folks who I would see even less because it was a figure eight. So if you missed them, I mean, it'd be hours before you saw them again. It was good. I tell you what, by the end of the six hours, I felt guilty leaving. On my last two laps, I started saying goodbye to people. <laughs> and like, I'm sorry. I, I started feeling guilty that I was only doing six. I went out there with six is going to be so hard. And it was because you match your effort to the distance. But by the end of it, I thought I get to leave now and they start their night run. Like I did maybe six laps in the dark. That was like the first spoonful for everyone who was going overnight. And I felt like I was bailing on people who were sticking around to fight the fight I should have been fighting. So I felt a bit of that too. Like I'm letting people down by leaving. 
there's a lot, man, there's a lot of that at Mid-State. You hear about why it gets so many of the same return people is that they felt bad or they feel like they left something out there or, or you know, whatever it is. Even if they don't come back to race, they just come back to experience it and spectate. It gets so many <laughs> return spectators. It's insane. It's a beautiful place for sure. Well, Justin underplays his running. <laughs> Because, you know, he looks and said, I got lucky that Bracken only did the six. But I looked at it, what you were doing for your pace. And I thought if I were setting out to do 24, I wouldn't be running downhills like you were. And I don't know if I'd be looking as fresh as you are. We we were doing two different things, but I was in awe of what you were doing. And and I have this this like Strava shame almost because some of my college runs are linked to my Strava PRs, oh. like they have that blue link and you click on it and it shows and like my mile, my 800, some of those thing or wh- whatever else is on there. It's like, Oh yeah, th- it's faster than most of all the other people I'd ever raced. But if they just took me long enough, they drowned me in deep water. And that's how I felt about yours. I looked at it in our Strava's next to each other. And on paper, like you shouldn't beat me in most races, but in reality, you're going to drag me into deep water and you're going to drown me eventually. Like the runs you put yourself on for fun are runs that I would have to gear up to survive. So I, I love hearing that opposite side of the coin where like I have this deep drop off, very steep at a certain distance and you're just getting rolling. It is, it is wild, man. And it, it, it like, we could go back and forth for, for sure. It, 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 it amazes me what y'all hold and the things that Spartan athletes do under such distress man like just like cardio freezing hand like it's it i can go back and forth man it is wild uh i appreciate that i've never heard it explained in that manner right there man so i appreciate that <laughs> let's uh let's talk the other side of the coin then bracken so are you a pure ultra guy justin and where where does your race distance start and where does it end preferred so yeah uh, yeah, I would the answer to that question is yes. I'm just purely ultra uh, mountain racing. Um, I prefer mountain racing, um, but I will dive into some shorter distance uh, flat stuff. Uh, there's a there's a race here um, in North Georgia called Merrill's Mile, and it's on a one mile loop, and it's uh, they hold it at the Ranger Training uh, over there where they train like the Army Rangers and stuff. It's real cool. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's a record there that kind of sticking in the back of my head. I'm not gonna tell Bracken about it. He'll go smoke it real easy. Uh, but uh, <laughs> they got a six hour record there that's doable for sure if you're ready to sweat. I mean, the, it got up to 95 degrees for about three hours of the six. I tried to break the record. I made it 31 miles and was just puking my brains out. And uh, I just puked and walked for the rest of the clock. Um, but so I do shorter stuff, but I, I really, my heart is in the mountains and longer distance. Wait, are you referring and, to a six hour race as shorter stuff? Cause then I yes. think you're very confused yeah. as to what a short race <laughs> okay, is. Yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, that right there you t- shows the difference, right? <laughs> He's like, yeah, I'll do short stuff. I, I did this really short one and I was puking. It was like six hours. <laughs> There's so much irony in all of that. All right. Happens all the time. I, uh, I'll, I'll be talking to one of my wife's friends and like had nothing to do with running and I'll nonchalantly mention something on accident, like 30 miles yesterday or something like that. And then they're like, what? And then you just go into the whole conversation, how crazy you are. Um, but so, yeah, so 50 K to right now, man, I have my sights set on something ridiculous, but what I've done is 200 miles, 50 K to 200 miles, but I have, 
I have my sights set on a 525 mile world record right now that I'm I'm a, I'm going to train for the next two years to to uh, just a clean 525. Yeah, 525 on the treadmill in a week. We'll get <laughs> we'll uh, we'll get the Guinness Book. And uh, I ran my first 100 miles on a treadmill. So you're a psychopath. Very much so. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I have that connection there. So long answer. For your short question is 50 miles to 525, hopefully one day. 75 miles a day for seven days. That's it. What are the rules with this thing? Let's just dive right into that. I got to ask. I pulled out my calculator because I'm not good at quick math. So, Yeah. So, yeah. So the, the, the dude who just said it, I believe last May, he did 74.4 some odd miles a day. Um, and when I did the Fierce Dragon, um, oh, you talked about the rules. Okay. So... I don't know the Guinness Books rules, but so as far as a sanctioned run on a treadmill, like I did as my first one, you have to obviously record, you have to have a 24-hour clock going. You have to have pictures of that 24-hour clock with the mileage on the treadmill and something with the date as you start. You only need the date really when you start. And then you continue to take those pictures chronologically. If you get off the treadmill, you have to take a picture with you, the watch, and the treadmill, timestamp and everything. And so for the treadmill 100, I think I sent them, I got off the treadmill like 15 times. Um, it got crazy mentally. <laughs> uh, and I ended up sending them 15 pictures, and then they go through it. And I'm assuming the Guinness Book of World Records. I'm, well, I'm not assuming. I'm going to have a 24-hour. I'm going to have a video live feed going for five days. That's smart. Or seven days, sorry. And um, you, from my understanding is that you reach out to these individuals. You let them know that you're planning to break a world record. And if it's something crazy enough, sometimes they'll send an official or they'll tell you exactly what you need to document it, um, you know, just like you would like an FKT or something you would do out in the mountains. And that's that's 2023. That's in December 2023 is when I'm – um, I'm going to attempt that. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's it. That's that 525. I have more questions about this Guinness book of world record stuff because Bracken, we've had a few Guinness book of world record, outrageous, um, things that people have done on here. First of all, do you have to pay to attempt? And what does that process look like? I know we're going to go down a mini rabbit hole, but now that this has come up so many times, Bracken, I'm like curious, like, do you, like the intricacies well, there? I'll, you know I'll forewarn you. No. So this is this is this is the way I do it. And if Bracken's been following me on Instagram, you can probably attest. I often just bite off something with enough time that I believe I could train for it. So I all I did was yesterday I was looking at the BMT, uh, the Bitten Mackay Trail FKT, which is around I think 350 miles or something. It's really hard. Um, I don't even know what the record is, uh, but I decided I was going to go after that in two years or after a treadmill world record. And all I looked up was the numbers. I don't know the rules. I don't. Um, it's one of those things that, like as for treadmill, as for fierce dragon, I bit these things off and uh, I went after them. And as the time got closer, I obviously knew the rules, the details, and stuff like that. But for like for instance, cruel drool one hundred. I had no idea it's notoriousness for being, for having so much elevation. They call it the hard rock of the South. And I signed up for that as my second 100 miler after the treadmill and just had no idea what I was getting myself into. But then I learned and I trained for a year and it ended up being okay. 
And so with your Guinness Book of World <laughs> Record questions, brother, I won't have your answers. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. That's fair. Oh, yeah, there is a fee. And generally, it covers the cost of getting a test proctor basically out there and covers all of that. I think it's around $1,000 for a Guinness attempt. Hmm. Even to have somebody like review your footage or your data, I suppose there's got to be a... That's different. If you want to make it totally above board and official so that it won't ever get uh, discredited by Guinness, you have to have one of their officials there. You can you can get a Guinness record without them there, but then you have to have you know that indisputable proof, and then then you're at their mercy. Where if their guy or girls there, then you know that then it's good. Like when Goggins did pull ups, he just made sure someone was there so that they could count reps in the moment rather than oh, on video at hour 17 we saw that some of those shouldn't have counted that's true man that's that's big money mm. can you imagine the guinness person getting the call being like you're gonna go to this dude's basement you're gonna watch him run for seven days straight they'd be like <laughs> fire me i'm not interested in this shit <laughs> and i think that one would be easier because you don't have to count reps you just have to look up when they step off the treadmill but it'd be boring if you didn't like that kind of that kind of fun. That's what I was going to say. They got to have like certain, hey, we got one of these ultra freaks. Oh, yeah. What's his name? Loves those. Like, go get that guy. He runs ultras. And mm-hmm. they, they'd end up loving it. My wife's so funny and crazy. She'd, she'd be cooking for him. It'd be a party. It'd be sweet. I, well, that's good information, Bracken. Thank you. <laughs> and, I, and I don't take that as, as tr- gospel truth there, but... A, a couple of my buddies have tried to do it and some got caught up in red tape and didn't get it. And then some tried to get them to come out and they wouldn't come out. And then others got someone there and then they were above board. Make sure you cross your T's and dot your I's before you try to run 525 miles. Cause that would, <laughs> that would stink at the end of it. They're like, yeah. good, good effort, but no, no record. <laughs> yeah. You don't want a clerical issue to screw up 525 miles. No, sir. No. I want to earn those stretch fractures. That's a fact. <laughs> Do you foresee that being an issue? No, but the only reason I said that is yesterday when I was Googling the, uh, the record, it, what it was before I actually found the Guinness stuff, it was a Runner's World magazine interview of the guy, and it was saying why you should not do this. It was like, yeah. do not attempt this for this list of reasons. And I read number one, and number one was stress fractures. And I don't, I assume that I, I really assume that people who are professional ultra marathon runners, especially 200 mile distance and farther have stress fracture experiences and kind of just keep on rolling with it. You know what I mean? And either it ends up a big issue or they just, I don't know, adapt. If I were to embark on this, just mulling it over right now, I think one of my biggest quandaries i would run into is my debate my internal debate between do i keep the treadmill flat and get my mileage as quickly as possible or do i raise it up a little bit to deload that pounding that would be a tough one because it'd be hard to watch your pace drop knowing that you're just wasting time but knowing that you're maybe a little safer from stress fracture you that is such a good point a talking point because i found out on the treadmill losing the pace was worth it. Um, I started going down. I started going up. I started going so slow where I could walk sideways, backwards, any literal, any, that was the biggest problem I ran into Hmm. is I went out and trained on the road thinking road treadmill, 
I didn't want to kill myself by training on the treadmill so much that when race day came, I hated it. So I ran on the road, but fortunately and unfortunately to me, I live in a really hairy area, uh, a hairy, hilly area. <laughs> Could be both. You're backwoods. Yeah, uh, both. And um, even the road runs, I was getting, you know, I'd run a 10 miler and get over a thousand feet of gain. And then about mile 70 on the treadmill of that uh, 100 mile attempt, I, uh, my left leg, I didn't know what it was at the time. I hadn't gotten into the books and stuff, but I had my patella femoral, everything to do with my patella and my quad had just crapped out. And I had my leg taped straight for the last 30 miles and was like uh force gumping it with one leg, you know? And, um, so that is something that I would deliberately train for is, and, and how do you train to get better and safer on flat? I don't know. That was something, that's something I'd have to dive into, you know, like how do you bulletproof your knees for 500 miles? Yeah. Your hips and the area would have to be so strong. It's like the opposite of hill running, but it's the same thing. Like you still need your hips. Exactly. It's weird. You got to think like the exact same, like the exact same foot plant. For 575 miles, even on the road, you get to change that up with undulation, but the literal exact same foot plant. You should see, I'll, uh, I'll send you guys the picture. I was just looking over this, um, the picture of my feet. You would think all the mountain stuff I do, getting them wet in the freezing cold rivers, being in the exposed for five days in the mountains, my feet would be the worst. 24 hours on the treadmill, hands down, the worst my feet ever looked. From what you said, it was the weirdest blisters ever. Like from just smashing and smashing in the same way. Every toe had blisters in between them. The toenails had blisters under them. It was just, it was the most gruesome my feet. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's the most gruesome they've looked, I'd say. On a treadmill. Bracken, if you were to go for a Guinness World Record, what would it be? We're going to get to Justin again in a second. What would it be? If you had to pick one that you had a legit shot at, that you would go. Bear crawl, 100 meter world record. Is that a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. For speed? For speed. All fours? That's fast. That's got to be All fast. fours, yeah. What's the... Was that like 40? Is it, is it like, a, <laughs> like a 40 seconds or something? I thought it was like 19 or something. And I, I think I could get that. <laughs> 19? I mean, think of all the world records out there. That's probably the most in my wheelhouse. I've seen this man bear crawl. It's yeah, and that's crazy too. I love it. That's insane. I couldn't get a running world record. So, is there any like minimum height that you have to stay under? Or it's just galloping on all fours. That's the question: is do you have to have two points of contact at all time, or can you gallop? Like, can you cheat or run this? If you can cheat or run it, like it's a done deal. But if you have to alternate hands and trot it, then maybe I can't do it. Okay. I have a friend that I think is a good. He'd be a good guy. He was uh, my, my buddy in the police academy, straight from Nigeria. Um, and he, when we would do the bear crawl, they would do the bear crawl to punish us, and they'd make us do it up a hill. And uh, he would, it was, to me, I was like kind of in shape then too. I was like, that is, and I bear crawled in the army. I'd never in my life see someone assume the bear crawl position and be able to do it with such flow. And he would be, it made the instructors mad. They started making us do more because he was so good. And uh, yeah, Habib Shagban, was, he's my brother, man. He, I think he could, uh, he'd be a good uh, contestant for that as well. Well, me and Habib might have to get after it together. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. But to answer your question, Kirk, I'm not fast enough 
to do a short world record. And I don't think I have that abnormality, <laughs> you know, whatever's switched off in Justin's brain that allows him to run through toenail blisters. I don't think I have that either. <laughs> so the long distance stuff is out. I don't think I can break a running world record. It has to be an oddball record. Yeah. What would yours be? Uh, I'd be one of the pull-up records. I, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I think I think I'd have a legit shot at the hundred pound pull-up record um, with a hundred pounds around your waist. I looked into that a couple of years ago. What is it? It's like 12, 13. And I've done eight legit when I was really, you know, my beefy days. And it was a once a week pull up, you know, day. And I stacked the weight on and I'd usually hit reps of six. And on a good day, I'd get up to seven or eight. And I thought maybe that one would have a shot. It's not very high, but I mean, it's a hundred pounds around your waist. So go figure. I suppose that's a tough one because for it to be a small percentage of your body weight, you'd be too big to do pull-ups. So you'd have to be that right in the middle range where you're yeah. light, but just big enough to handle about it. About 170, 175 pounds, about 510. I think that's a sweet spot on that one. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be it probably. That's a, that's a man. I'm going to go after this. I'm just going to go look at all the crazy fitness world records because the bear crawl, that's one I've never fathomed. A pull-up, weighted pull-up one. I went ahead and assumed you're talking about like, as many reps as possible without coming off the bar just a single single one yeah one set that's crazy that's insane 100 pounds i'm i want to go try that after this and see if i can do half a one we almost went after one in high school now i know that doesn't count but it was the 24 hours max distance pushing a lawnmower with a four-person team (laughs) (laughs) like the most bizarre that probably at that time you had to average like I don't know, six minute pace for 24 hours, but you got to split it between four people. So if you just all went out and ran a half hour at a time, pushing a lawnmower, we're going to do it on the Milwaukee mile. So that was on just lap at a time. And, uh, and it never really got past the reaching out. Hey, any interest in this? And they're like, I don't know. I don't even know who you'd talk to about that. And then we gave it up because we're in high school, but that was going to be the one we were going to go after. Mm, That's one we could try now. Let's get a four man team together. We can crush it. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder what the lawnmower requirement is. We never even got that far. Could you have the kind yeah. with the good wheels on it? Does it have to be on? I was a mechanic. Could we like mess with the, uh, make the, you know, it roll faster, better bearings? Yeah. There's got to be a car, pu- car push world record. That's true. If there's a lawnmower one, yeah. And apparently there's anything. Let's move on. I think we could drag <laughs> this one out for a while if we really wanted to. I. Uh, I, I guess, Brecken, you don't know Justin's backstory, I suppose, since you, you chatted for 10 total minutes. Only what he's shared online, but there's enough fragments dropped there that it's a unique one. Well. Take us back. Have you al- Bring us back. Yeah. Have you always been an endurance athlete? Where did your, where did your, your fitness experience start? Yeah. So I, um, <clears throat> I started running for the first time in 2011. Like for the first deliberate time, I ran track in seventh grade and I ran the 1600 and I was literally the person they clapped for at every meet because I was, you know, you can do it. You can finish, not win. I was running like eight minute miles. And uh, yeah, so I was not a good runner. And that was the last time I ever attempted to run. And then fast forward to 2011, I'm now 20 something, 20, uh, 22 years old. And I'm smoking cigarettes and I go into a, a shoe store. And uh, I look at this pair of like Nike running shoes. To me now, they look like what my dad would have mowed the grass in when I was a kid. 
But to me then, they were running shoes. And I bought the running shoes. I threw the cigarettes away. And at the time, I was just waiting tables. Nothing real crazy was going on in my life. You know, I'd previously been a wild, crazy partier, but that had all settled down. I was just waiting tables and smoking cigarettes and being just a good citizen. <laughs> okay, how, how old are you? 20, 2011, 22. Huh? 22? You're done with the 20, Army 20, already? 21. 21. Had, uh, nope, hadn't started the Army yet. I was just about to go in. Oh, let's slow this down. Hold on. We're going to stop you. <laughs> we can't just skip from 13 to 21. Okay. All right. So but, why'd you stop running in seventh grade? What? Why'd you, you were a cheerleader, but you, I wasn't any good. Oh, okay. So, all right. So this is what happened with my fitness. As far as seventh grade, I'm trying to do track and stuff. I found a skateboard and my entire rest of my life went towards skateboard, skateboarding, partying, drugs, <laughs> more partying, more skateboarding, and there's a ton of wreckage uh, in that seventh grade to 21-year-old um, time frame, and I kind of just put that to the side for now um, due to probably there's statute limitations and some stuff I can't talk about that ain't up yet. You know what I mean? I ain't trying to go to jail. <laughs> so it was legit not good. Yes, there was a not good time for me from 13 to 21. It was bad. And for anyone that was around me, um, had anything to do with me, I was a tornado of wreckage. And um, at 21, I had came in contact with some awesome family members and good friends who helped me uh, see the light, man, and change my life. And um, I, got, I got sober with their help. And I started waiting tables at this place in Richmond, Virginia, and I was just waiting tables, smoking cigarettes and, you know, just being a regular old citizen. Um, and I go in that running store. I see those big, fat, white marshmallow Nikes and I throw my cigarettes away. And at that point in time, I'm like, OK, you know, I'm not partying. I'm a good citizen, but it just doesn't feel enough. And I was like, maybe I'll just start running and that'll make me feel better about myself. And I saw, so I ran to my mom's house, which was two miles away. And I remember it took me over 20 minutes. And, um, I was probably like, you know, I would have said overweight at that time. I was like 200 pounds where I should have been like 170 naturally and just eating fast food. And so I get there to, you know, 20 minute, two mile to my mom's house. And I was like, man, I remembered that I could do better than that. And, uh, when I was 13 and I was like, well, I'm going to fix this issue. And so I started running and with the run came, with the running came pride in myself with each little PR and it was just me and myself and no clue and runner's world magazine. You know what I mean? For tips. And I would go out and this was before, I don't want to like try to sound like I'm cool and old, but this was before GPS watches were real like available. I would go out in my car and drive with my odometer on zero, turn around mm -hmm. when it hit two and go back. And I'd be like, all right, I would put a milk jug or something there and be like, that's my turnaround point. And I started doing that and I started getting fit. And then I was like, man, I want to, I, I passed the army recruiter on the way home one day waiting tables. And I went in there and I was everything that they needed at the time. And they needed a bunch of people. And within three months, man, I, I or I, they gave me a date to leave within, I had, when I walked in three months later, I was getting on a bus to join the army. And so I had three months to train. And I would train and train. I watched all the like the army video, like uh, surviving the cut, army rangers, the Green Beret stuff, mm -hmm. and just trained and trained, man. And found myself on the bus to go to the army. Yeah, at 22, 
And 2012 is when I joined the Army. Yeah. I want to backtrack for a second, and then we're going to pick Do this it. back up. Because I think you're skipping over some good stuff here. Um, Probably. Why were you such a pain in the ass as a kid? Why do you think that was? That's So I had this knack for, and I identified this, um, probably I'd say clearly identified with it about three years ago. But So I had this knack for blaming literally everything in the world on everyone but me. Never took responsibility. And there was a lot of, there was a, there was a lot of big things that would happen to me that weren't my fault. And there was people that should have been in trouble and to blame for it. But the day I turned 18, I had the ability and the means to start making my own decisions, you know what I mean? And I still didn't. And I relied on from 18 to 29, 30 years old, I relied on the me- the mistakes everyone else made in my life and how those mistakes messed me up as an individual rather than looking at what I could do to better myself. And so uh, about three years ago, I stopped caring about what happened to me between 13 and 21. And I started just focusing on what can I do? And, you know, if you go, if you have, anyone's ever been to rehab or in an AA meeting or anything, they call it cleaning your side of the street. You know, you can clean up your side of the street, can't worry about your neighbor. You'd hope they clean theirs, but you know, and when I started that or focusing and meditating on that ideology or that philosophy of just what can I do to be better? You know, um, if I'm going to hold the door open for an individual, is it to receive a thank you or am I doing it just because that's I'm nice? You know what I mean? And I started really honing in on that. Um, it's sad, but I, when I was almost 30 years old and in the past three years, I've just been hammering on it, man, every night trying to make an inventory to be better the next day. But going back to your question, that's why I was such a wreckage, man. I never took responsibility for anything I did because, yeah, maybe something bad happened to me, but I would just let that snowball. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, sounds like uh, like so it's just rebellion, anger, all that stuff coming out, pissed off. Yeah, yep, yep. Maybe I need more attention. Uh, I, so let me just uh, – if I act this way over here – I'm going to get a bunch of attention. It might not be the good attention, but it, everyone's focused on me nonetheless. You know what I mean? Um, very bratty. It sucks. I hate to look back and see that's how it was, but it's almost it's, um, it's double-edged sword because it's also good to be able to look back and see that that's how it was because that's mean I've changed a little bit. <laughs> I'm wondering if there's something to it all because, Bracken, as you know, like <clears throat> I could probably think of a half a dozen accomplished athletes in our little circle who have a similar story when they were younger just breaking laws menaces drugs sex alcohol not going to school whatever it was and then like finding a different outlet i mean bracken can you think of a a handful yourself i just not that it's a common story but i'm wondering like is is there some sort of parallels there or some connection to be drawn i don't know yeah, and they trend towards ultra. <laughs> I was going to say that. Yeah. I was like, if Bracken doesn't know a few, I know a lot. <laughs> what do you think it is, Justin? So I think it definitely has something to do with the obsessive, uh, the obsessive compulsive nature that us rebellious, addictive, wild people have. Um, I think that in and of itself, running ultras is a bit rebellious. Um it tends to go against what 
at least old science would say to do, and even modern science says it's healthy. And people are out here like, I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm going to show you why it's possible and whatnot. You know what I mean? Um, so there's that aspect. And then there's the aspect of we go from partying, staying up all night, living this eventful, adrenaline-filled lives to nothing. Yes, you're now a good member of society, but you're just going to work and coming home and you have that. And then you take this trail aspect and you throw 100 mile, 100 milers and, you know, 50 mile, whatever, all the way down to the people who only run 5Ks on the trails. It's, it takes a certain amount of grit uh, to, get, to get into that and stay in that community. And uh, you find, so like when I would have my big group of party friends, you'd have somebody who, you know, puts in electric fences as a, their profession. They, um, they're a vet aide as their profession, but in the, in the behind the scenes, they're a hardcore drug addict. They're a hardcore, you know, alcoholic or this, or gambler. Well, it's that same, same thing in the ultra world. You know what I mean? I have friends who put in electric dog fences for a living, who are vet techs, who are dental techs, but in the back scene, they're out there after work with the headlamp running up and down the same hill so they can train for this crazy race out on the West coast. They have no business entering. You know what I mean? And you find that same level of obsession grit and understanding within the ultra community that you do within the uh the misery loves company uh kind of aspect of drug addiction and partying i hope that makes a little bit of sense <laughs> it does and, and you always hear people talk about well you know you can't change dopamine receptors and once you once you have a chemical pathway you have to fill it another way otherwise there's that gaping hole but the way you, you explained it from a side of the coin that you don't hear explained a lot which is that it's it's the similar, it's a similar trait, just positive, negative side of the coin. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, you can go, yeah. And it, it can get, it can get bad in a sense. Like my first year of really trying to race and stuff, I was very obsessive. I was running or racing every month. I was either entering a race with the hope of winning, <laughs> no business hoping of winning and put my body through the ringer. Or on the weekend, I was if it wasn't a race, I was trying to break like my 50k uh, distance, uh, time distance, or something. And so I was just, I had put my running on the front burner, put my wife and kids on the back burner in a sense. You know what I mean? So just much like my alcoholism and crazy party life, I started obsessing about running and stuff, and um, it all balanced itself out because I then I, I identified that. You know what I mean? I was able to identify that. Um, because although running and stuff can be addictive, it is not a, a substance. So I was, <laughs> I was it's a lot uh, easier to identify when you're overdoing it and stuff with running, and uh, and to back out. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. My mom and dad and I were having a conversation yesterday about a, a a guy we know, and he used to be a wrestler, wrestled for two decades or whatever, and and we talked about how he had that, like that college wrestler personality. That they just are extremely relaxed. They have this like little half grin at all times and they don't have a care in the world. Now, some of them are super cocky and douchey about it and others are just really genuine and kind, but they're all relaxed and calm. And it's almost like I've had physical hand-to-hand -hand confrontations for a decade. 
I lose a lot because in wrestling, you don't go undefeated because in training, you just get beat down. Even if you never lose a match, you're getting beat down all the time. People get the best of you in the gym or whatever. And most wrestlers lose a lot throughout a decade and they're not afraid of losing. They're not afraid of physical contact. There's probably nothing you can do to them that's going to be worse than what they've done to themselves. They've done the starvation diet thing. So they know what hungry feels like. They know what nausea feels like. They know what unable to sleep feels like. And so nothing really phases them. They walk around with this weird calmness. And I think that that's one component that doesn't get talked about a lot about that ex-addict or alcoholic into ultra world is you've got that calmness like, well, what's a race really going to do to me that I haven't done to myself? I'm not afraid of dying because I've intentionally chosen that path before. I'm not afraid of hurting. I'm not afraid of being up all night. I'm not afraid of some part of my body not working. I'm not afraid of hallucinating. Like there's that, there's a bit of that calmness. Like what really are you going to do to me? Let's go find out. That's so true. That is so true. Whereas I don't, like we talked earlier that would I run with blisters under my toenails? I, I don't have that, that switch. That's, I don't care what happens to me. I, I'm not going to put myself in a situation where it's it's a it's a real unknown to me, but other people will, and part of it has to do with backstory as well. Like what gets you to that point of being comfortable, not caring anymore. That that's I was talking. So my last pacer on the Fierce Dragon 200, um, we talked about that. It was snowing. The snow was blowing. The wind was blowing so hard. 30, 40 mile an hour wind gusts, downpour of snow. And he was, we were talking and he was saying, I think, cause he knew my backstory, but I didn't know a whole lot of his. Um, and he was like, I think that our lifestyles make us a little tougher out here in the woods. And he said, you know, cause when you go from having to endure whatever stuff, terrible things as a child or terrible things that are self-induced like I did, um, whatever it is, you've made it out of that, that real pain, that real physical and emotional soul sucking pain. And then now it's just a race. <laughs> this is just a run. At any point in time, no matter how bad this hurts, no matter if my ankle's broken and I'm still going, at any time I can still stop and be on the couch laying down or have medical attention. I think about that is such a good point. And to compound on top of it, I think about it in aspect to the, you know, the people who we have in professions that they sacrifice their life. You know what I mean? Or they, they feel pain and they can't tap out. They feel pain. The last thing they feel is darkness and they've given their life for something greater. You know what I mean? I feel pain. I can tap out and quit my race at any minute. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that's one thing I held on to at Tennessee Mile when I wanted to uh, stop was, dude, I, it's too easy to stop. All I got to do is say, hey, I'm done. And the pain's gone. That's too easy. I can't do that. Not here. Not for this. Mm, I like that. And I think that's where some of our guilt comes from as shorter distance runners. There were some comments after Tennessee like, oh, you know, I could never try a downhill like that. Or the pace was crazy. But it's like, yeah, is it though? I knew it was only six hours. I could go up to four in training. I could predict exactly what I could hold per mile. And the only the only non-controllable was if it started to rain. And if it did, I was going to pit for 30 seconds and change my shoes. And that's what I did. Like they're... I went into a controlled, sterile situation, even though six hours is kind of long for me. And that course is kind of not sterile for me. It's a sterile situation. Going into a race where the unknown has to confront you, that's where that other side of the personality either steps up or shrinks back. 
And there's a clear delineating line with people. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I've met, yeah. So what, uh, then you're 21, you said you had some influential people in your, some family members. And you, you something happened there. What, what happened to actually get you to crawl out of, crawl out of that? Whether it was a clean break or it was a, you know, a blurry one, which they often are as well. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of, yeah, uh, it was definitely, it was messy. Um, so in that, in my years of wreckage from 13 to 21, I had reached a point to where basically all my family members were done. They weren't going to help me or give me a second chance anymore because statistics have shown that their help would not matter because eventually I would return to my old ways. Um, and so out of respect for them, I'm not going to mention who or, or who they were, uh, but a group of family members were done and they sent me away. Um, they sent me away and I had nowhere to go. And so I called friends and I was going to live with my friend. And I said, I, I was going, I was moving from Florida from my family members who, you know, were done with my craziness and sent me away. And I got to Richmond, Virginia. They kicked you out. They said, get out. Yeah. I said, get the, get the heck out. We're tired of our stuff going missing. We're tired of this, that, and the other, whatever. You know what I mean? We're tired of the wreckage you bring as a human being. And no fault to them. I was a, a tornado of wreckage, as I explained. But I had nowhere to go. And I, but I had a friend, my my buddy. I'm getting ready to go be uh, staying at his wedding um, here in uh, about two weeks. Um, but I called him, a buddy Sam, and he said, "Yeah, man, come on. Uh, you'll come stay with me, and uh, we'll figure it out." And I'm not sure what would have happened if I'd done that, but I do not think that I would have continued to pursue sobriety and stuff with the deliberation and conviction that I did. Um, my mom caught wind. My mom was an individual who had since been um, tired of me uh, and said I could no longer live with her, <clears throat> rightfully so. So she caught wind that I'd been kicked out, was going to go move with my friend. And I guess she said, well, this is, I'm going to try one more time. And she said, hey, do you want help? Yes or no? You cannot live with me, but I'll get you help. And I said, yes. And um, so she, my mother and my friend, my friends, Honesty and John, Honesty Liller and John Schinholzer helped me. I can't really go into detail about where I went and what happened due to the basically statute of limitations on stuff. One day I'm going to write a book and release everything. But there's things that I cannot mention just because I'll end up in jail. and I don't want to do that. Um, but so I, with my help of my family and the friends I mentioned, got sober. And it was literally the unconditional love that my mother showed me that uh, initially gave me the strength, you know, to say, dude, someone still <laughs> cares about me after all this? And uh, I don't think I've ever really thought about what little thing it, it was, but I had to uh, identify it, but I just did. And it was my mom's unconditional love, man. And, uh, and my brother, who was sitting right there in the living room, too. And uh, we made a decision that day um to change my life man and we just pursued <laughs> sobriety and uh once i picked up the running uh, that gave me that, that little that something else to focus on man to push all that energy because there was no doubt in anyone's mind i was a ball of energy from two years old to now this 22 year old who they're looking at trying to save and 
everyone agreed, hey, run, dude, just keep running. You come back different when you run. <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, I started going from not sleeping at night. You know, I'd always be able to fall asleep, but I'd wake up two hours later and I'd be tossing and turning until it was time to get up. But once I started running, I started sleeping and it helped with getting my life back together, man. It gave me routine. It gave me uh, something, you know, a job. And it, it, it filled all my empty time. My idle, I didn't have idle hands anymore. You know what I mean? I was always doing something. And that led into me joining the army, man. And then that, once I joined the army, I had all that same stuff I just mentioned running helped me with forced down my throat, the structure, the planning, the forced PRs from drill sergeants making you run faster and stuff. And, and then the army was the conduit or the next kind of stepping stone into helping save my life, man. Cause that wasn't it. When I got <clears throat> better at 22, so many other things continued to happen. Like I would be okay for, <clears throat> so I, I joined the army at 22 sober with the help of the friends and family. I just explained. <clears throat> and I stayed <laughs> sober for about at two years. And then I switched duty stations. I went from Fort Benning, Georgia to Clarksville, Tennessee. And that geographical change, I was like, dude, I've, I've got all this willpower now. At that point in time, I had ran my first 50K. And I, I you know, ran it down in Alabama's Mount Sheehaw 50K. And I was like, I have all this willpower from running races and or training and running that race. I can drink a beer, you know what I mean? And uh, I drank a beer. I drank a whole lot more. And me and my group of friends in Clarksville, Tennessee, were probably the most in-shape alcoholics on the planet because we... We wouldn't, it was so weird. We wouldn't sacrifice our runs and stuff because we were hungover and we'd be puking and running. And because we were all trying to achieve, uh, we were trying to go to a special army school to try to become Green Berets. And we were just drinking and working out all the time, man. So it was almost gave me, it almost made it okay. Cause I was like, well, yeah, I'm drinking. They don't know, but I know that I have to drink more once I go home or I'm going to. And when they're asleep, passed out, if we have a party, I'm up drinking all the empty cans of beer. What's left? You know what I mean? They don't know that. But in my mind, I'm like, I'm excelling in the military or excelling, succeeding in the military, but I'm an alcoholic. And this isn't that bad. You know what I mean? I, I had a little bout, bout recently that I could probably relate to on that, huh, Bracken? Yeah. Yeah, I went through detox in September for alcohol. Yeah, man. Congratulations to that, brother. And I was training, uh, training full time as a pro, pro in quotes athlete, uh, for months and months and months doing the same thing. And it was a slow lead up for years. And finally, it was like this got to stop. But um, I know all about running drunk, running hungover, running and puking, training hard, still showing up to races, whole deal. Yeah, that was just in September. I don't think I strung it out quite as long as you. It sounds like, but I. Uh, uh huh. I can relate, dude. You can relate fully. Yes, exactly. That I've, besides my army friends, I've never been able to say that. But yeah, exactly. If you're a pro athlete out there, freaking boozing it up to the point to that point and remaining your pro status and showing up, that's insanity. And I have a I have a friend who's a professional ultra runner, who just got sober too, and he's been a professional ultra runner for years. And that blew my mind, but it's, it's, I can relate, you know what I mean? And you can relate with me. And so there I was, you know what I mean? You know, finishing my Spartan race or whatever, whatever you can relate with and getting accolades, but 
just killing myself with this poison and behind the scenes, you know? And I ended up going and getting selected for special forces somehow. (laughs) And, you know, they sent me to airborne school and stuff. And with that, I had to stay in shape. And so I'm still staying in shape. But what's happening now is I'm getting sent to school. So the alcohol is kind of getting taken away. So I'm starting to like, look like I'm in shape as well. And um, the balance between all the schools they were sending me to to become a Green Beret, and it mixed, you know, not allowing me to drink was helping. But I remember uh, I was sitting is the where I quit um, the Green Beret pipeline. I was sitting in a swamp. My friends were filling up canteens with swamp water, dropping iodine tablets in it. They weren't no filter. So you're drinking, you get some sticks and bark. It's okay. There's iodine in it, they say. Um, and it's raining. And I look over at my friend and I'm on this machine gun. And I look at my friend and I'm like, bro, this ain't the life I want to live, man. I started picturing my Jeep Wrangler that I just bought before this school. And I started picturing, you know, this is what I'm picturing, driving around with a Bud Light in my Jeep with the roof off, you know, just drinking and driving. And I walk up the hill and I quit right then and there, man. I throw away everything in the world because I'm my obsession with alcohol is what it was. I told everyone I quit for my family. I did have a, a son at home, um, but that's not why I quit. Um, I quit because I wanted to be comfortable with alcohol in my hand. And uh, I got home, and once you quit that school, um, we were in the position because my wife was in the military as well. That I was able to get out of the military on the you know on a family care plan because she she was set to deploy. She was we were having another. She was pregnant again, and they were just like, "Look, man, you don't have any like if we deploy both of y'all, that's an impossibility. So one of y'all got to get out." And we chose me. She outranked me by a ton. So we were like, yeah, let's let her stay in. She's going to make the money. I'll get out. And when I got out, dude, all that structure, all that stuff that was keeping me kind of skinny, kind of healthy went away. And I just, I started a job at a tool shed where I would, mechanics would come and ask for a tool and I'd hand it to them because I was a mechanic in the army. So I could identify tools and that's all I do and drink. And like, I'll just show up hungover and just, just, I was crazy, man. Um, and I, I looked at my uniform one day on the bed and I was like, I, I knew I needed to do it again. I needed to go back in the army or I was going to die. And I was like, but I can't go back in the army. They're not, you know what I mean? Um, it had been so many ropes to go around. And so I was like, police officer, I could be a police officer. That's kind of like the army. And I remember going to my wife and she said, yeah, yeah, you can be a cop if you want to be a cop. Sure. I think she sensed the, uh, the need for structure and something prideful for me to do, to focus on. And, um, I started calling around at this point in time, she had started to make her way out of the military as well. And we were going to go back to Atlanta area, Atlanta, Georgia area. So I started calling around to police departments and you know, I got a lot of nose cause my, my, I have uh, tattoos. I got a lot of nose for that. Um, and a lot of people just wouldn't call me back. And then I called uh, the DeKalb County Police Department, and they answered. And what I didn't know at the, at the time is that this, this county has the highest murder rate in the state. So it's, like, busy. Their cops are busy. It's called a high-call-volume area. Uh, if any cops listening, they definitely know that term. Um, and <clears throat> so they, I didn't even get off the phone before I had a date to go do a physical fitness test for them. And so – Within three months, remember the three-month number for the Army recruiter? So within three months of calling this guy, I was standing 
in formation at the police academy in Georgia and uh, uh, a little bit hungover still. And at the police academy, we were so the second smallest in history. There was only four of us. And amongst the four of us was me. Uh, we had Habiba Shagban, the bear crawl champion, who's going to try to attack uh, Bracken. And then we had uh, Edgar Flores um, and then uh, Nia Ramsey. And it was the four of us for six months. And it was crazy because we grew such a big bond because the classes were normally like 20, 30 people. You know what I mean? And so Flores and I, we were always paired up because um, Habib and Ramsey were closer in size. Habib's like a elite style marathon runner. He, I think he's got like a 220 marathon or something. I don't know. He's fast. Uh, so he was tiny. They paired them up and me and Flores were always paired up. And at some point during the police academy, my instructor came to me and she said, look, I, I can smell it on you when you come here in the morning. Play it simple. If you don't stop, you're not going to graduate. And I stopped for three months. I didn't drink again until we graduated. Um, we graduated and I started drinking again. Um, but I was a really good cop. I was a really good cop. Um, I would show up to work and in between, you know, getting 911 calls, I would be patrolling really dangerous areas, just looking for criminals deliberately. You know, that same obsession and compulsion that I had for alcohol and, and, and running at one point, I'm now just like trying to be good cop. And, uh, it showed. And you know what I mean? I, I started to make my way up and, but my home life was dying, man. My wife didn't know who I was anymore. I had, we live in a dry County, so we didn't have liquor stores. So I would have jugs of Mike's hard lemonade because it was the highest content of alcohol that the store had at the time in the, in the uh, closet. And I would go in there like on movie night with my wife and say, I got to use the bathroom. And I would just chug Mike's hard lemonade. Sometimes to the point where I'd go sit down and have to get up and run into the bathroom and puke. And then I had to come out and try to, to explain to her what just happened. You know what I mean? And so that happened for the basically the entire year, first years I was a cop. What was her level of awareness about this? So when we talk about it now, then so at first she said, I didn't know. And then now when she talks about it, she swears she just shut it out. She yeah. would have rather not ask me if I was drunk than me lie to her. So she just stopped asking. And I was going to work. Bills were getting paid. So she just accepted this crappy life, which is very sad. You were um, functioning, functioning alcoholic. I was functioning, man. Yeah, I was functioning. Um, I was functioning, but I was going up at a, at a grade to where it was – I was going to die. I was going to hit a brick wall soon. I wasn't going to function more much longer. And that brick wall came, man. My, my buddy Edgar – um, my best bud from the academy, man, he he conducted a traffic stop a year after we graduated the police academy and he was shot and killed. And when he was shot and killed, my alcoholism, substance abuse and any form of mind and mood altering I could obtain skyrocketed. And not because of Edgar, because now I had an excuse. You know what I mean? Um, and. I soon found myself as a homicide detective, a position for homicide came up um, in our department and I put in for it. When Edgar died, I gave his eulogy and that eulogy was broadcasted across you know, the nation and in Mexico and everyone in the police department now knew my face. Obtaining a position in homicide, the first, I would say, the first thing to do is to get your name known. One, you go out and arrest a bunch of people, which I did. So I kind of had that work ethic and my name known for that. But then 
I gave Edgar's eulogy. And that really made these people, when my name across the board, they're like, oh, that, we know who Justin is. That's that guy who gave Ed, uh, uh, Edgar's eulogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's talk to him. So no doubt about it to this day. Edgar got me that got me that interview. You know what I mean? I, I I give it to him every time, and I go in there and I get selected because I did. I was a good cop. I was articulate and I am smart. So I got the foot in and I became a homicide detective within two and a half years of being a cop, which is literally unheard of. Most people that I tell a story don't that are cops don't believe me because they're just like it's impossible. And but I did. I made homicide detective. Um, I think around. March of 2019, I solved my first official murder in June of 2019. I was arrested for DUI on July 14th, 2019, and I had my badge taken from me on October of 2019. Hmm. And it was that point in time, my wife said, what do you do now? And the only thing I could think of that was going to save me was running. I was like, I'm just going to run. I'm going to freaking run. I want to be a professional ultra marathon runner. And right now, a 230-pound overweight alcoholic homicide detective is telling someone they want to be a professional ultra marathon runner. And uh, she, she looked at me funny, but then she could tell I was serious. And she was like, okay. Not to this. Sounds like it's gonna take a long not time. Not to interject real quick. This story, I'm like, I'm hanging by every word. Um, but were you running or like you took this big break again? Where you were like a functioning alcoholic, police officer, homicide detective, non-worker outer human. Yes. And so this, all of this stuff that that Bracken has bragged to me about, as far as you go, happens after 2019. Yeah. Jeez. Yes. Did you know this, Bracken? No. And what I'm curious about is this this timeline then. When did you leave the military? Left the military February 2017. So from and what did you weigh that date? I was probably about 205. So you're you were a big lean mean fighting machine. I wasn't lean and mean at that point in time. So nope. I was a lean and mean fighting machine and then on my process out of the army that took about 60 days. I didn't run. I ate. And so I went from a 190 lean guy to now about two, 15 pounds of fat from drinking and fast food. And then you put 25 more on over the next two years. Yeah. So, so yeah. Well, I, so in the police, so I go to police academy about 220 and then I lose it. I graduated police academy about 185 stud. And yeah, when I come out of the, uh, when I come out of, when I lose my badge, I'm 230. So you've yo-yoed for the last decade. My brother calls me Christian Bale. Because, <laughs> dude, you lose and gain weight like Christian Bale. And uh, so, yeah, so, so just back and forth, man, trying to, trying my bet, like this little person inside of me is like, come on, you can do it. But then the evil forces are like, no, you ain't. <laughs> and that was just me succumbing, you know, my weak will at that point in time because I had yet to grasp the idea of, hey, take responsibility for yourself. Um, Let's talk about, not to twist the knife at all, but I appreciate you being an open book. Like, yeah, man. Talk about losing, losing your badge, man. Like getting pulled over, getting a DUI as a police officer. Now I know some police officers and I don't know if this is 
how this works, but I know one instance in particular, and I won't divulge any more than that, in which a police officer was pulled off, off duty, drinking, you know, escorted home, never to be spoken about again, because they knew the ramifications uh, of this police officer being caught drinking, which was obviously losing your badge. I've heard that sort of story before, and that's a true story. I'm sure there's thousands of those over time, correct? Like, what what was that like? That had to be like the world was fucking ending. Exactly. Yeah. So as far, so as, far as the DUI arrest itself, the details of how that arrest took place on that date, I can't talk about that because, believe it or not, with COVID, I haven't been to court for the DUI I got over two years ago. Mm. So at some point in time, they're going to call me and I'm going to be on top of some mountain. They're going to be like, hey, you got a court date for that DUI and I'm going to show up for it and, and deal with whatever comes then. But yes, I remember saying I'm a homicide detective and I remember them saying I'm sorry. And as they put the handcuffs on and uh, I, what happens is, and so the profession, professional courtesy is what you're talking about. I was arrested off duty. I was arrested off duty. If you're arrested on duty drunk, it is 10 times worse. I, I didn't do that, thank God. Um, I would. I, was I headed there to be arrested drunk on duty? Yes. If had, had this not happened, then it was just a matter of time. And it was mm-hmm. my care for the outside world had started to diminish. Uh, and I was fighting, wanting to be a first responder and wanting to kill myself with booze. And... So I, I get arrested, man, and off duty, and I'm so happy there was no professional courtesy. That's not a thing anymore, really, um, mm-hmm. with body cams. So there, everything is recorded from the minute the cop gets out of the car at most police departments across the nation. And they can't, you know, you're drunk on film. They'll lose their job, and I'm so happy they have. They followed protocol. Like I said, I can't say what happened, but they followed protocol and brothers in blue put me in a jail cell. I'm saying good job um, for doing your job Um, and accepting that fact. So I get out of jail 30 something hours later to this day. That was the hardest 30 hours of my life, because when you go to jail, specifically in Atlanta City as a cop, I guess they put you in the same cell that they always put all the cops in. I don't know. But I went to administrative segregation to be kept safe, right? Because I had probably put some of those people in that jail. And they took me to administrative segregation where all the crazy, crazy people were. And as they're escorting me in, they're banging on the door saying, that's a cop, that's a cop. And so for 30 hours, I sat with my back against the wall looking at this jail cell. Only thing I'd ever seen was Oz and me put people in jail. And the jailer say, this place is crazy. You know what I mean? So I'm expecting the door to open at any minute and people just bum rush and kill this cop that's in here. And that might be outlandish, man, but that's the state of mind I was in. And I get out by the grace of God. I remember telling my wife, uh, called my wife. She was like, I'm talking to the bails bondsman. He's saying this, that, or the other. I'm like, bails bondsman, go to the bank, get money out and pay it all right now. Get me out of here. And she did it. And when I get out, I go on my phone, man, and every news outlet in Metro Atlanta has my picture on it. Every news outlet. And it says, detective gets DUI. Okay. Detective strikes pedestrian and gets DUI. I can say about the details that the pedestrian is alive and well. 
And that is all glory to God, man. She mm-hmm. is doing good. Um, and so I'm confronted with this utter shame. And that wasn't enough to get, that was just not enough to get me sober, man. I um, just drank and drank and drank and still. And I woke up, I managed to not drink one night. And I think it was because I had a bunch of um, ba- like muscle relaxers or something. You know what I mean? And I took them and I didn't drink. So I didn't wake up hungover. So if it's an, an alcoholic, alcoholic, you get that, you wake up hungover, the best thing to cure it is a drink. And then you're kind of off to the races. You're kind of okay. And, but I didn't do that. So that endless cycle of waking up hungover and drinking to get it to go away was broken for just a minute. And I was looking in the mirror. And it was like everything just happened all at once. And I was like, I remembered Flores dying as a cop honorably. And I remembered all the sacrifices everyone is making. And I'm sitting here throwing my life away. And right then and there, dude, I took buzzers out and shaved my head. And I said, I'm changing my life. And I started running. And uh, that was July 25th of 2000. Or that was, oh, man, what's the sobriety date now? I can't even think of it. October, July 25th, 2019. So I get arrested on the 14th, 25th. I'm officially sober. So I was on administrative leave from my DUI, attacking my addiction, trying to, you know, going to rehab, doing all this other thing, pending a decision to fire me. Everyone said, they're not firing you. You're the only person to make homicide detective that fast. Like, man, and I'll tell y'all that I haven't talked about, I've been on a, a podcast or two or, you know, interviews on Instagram, and I've avoided a lot of this. And I knew one day that I would be in a conversation to where I felt that it was just okay to just talk, man, and talk. Mm-hmm. And then that's, that's this, that's this it. one, man. Well, it sounds like you've told it a hundred times because it's polished. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. I do. So yes, I was obsessing about trying to stay sober and going to all lengths, uh, just like I was to, you know, get drunk or high. And or to run at some points and to to help the confusion. So while I was drunk, I had oh, this is the way I explain it. From when I started running before I joined the army, I was basically in marathon finishing shape the entire time. So I could run a marathon and finish in four and a half hours, five hours at any point in that time. So yes, I was I started officially running ultras with the idea of being good in 2019, I was, I wasn't necessarily not, I didn't go couch to ultra. You know what I mean? I was ready to run a marathon. Um, mm-hmm. Even at two thirty. even at two thirty, Yeah. Oh yeah. I would fat boy it right onto the finish line, man. Um, I never ran a, a official marathon, but I would do them like whether it was with a rucksack in the army or I would, my, me and my friends would go out and, and clock it and do a marathon and, and so I'm trying, I'm staying sober. I'm on administrative leave pending termination. And so they basically said, Hey, we're going to fire you. You just got to hang on a little while while we get all the paperwork together, but we'll pay you. And so I was like, okay. And I, I was just running a lot. I started running again. Uh, I had this rickety old treadmill in the basement. Um, I wish I could never remember the brand name. Cause it's a really famous brand name from like Walmart. And it didn't even have, you couldn't even see how fast you were running or how far you had gone. But I had a piece of paper because the screen was broken. And I had a piece of paper that said, you know, if you click the number seven, that'll be an eight and a half minute pace or, or whatever it is. 
And so mm-hmm. that's how I would do it. I'd say seven and I'd click my watch and I'd run for an hour and that's how I'd figure out my mileage. And my wife was like, we gotta, she would hear it eat, 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 like in the basement. And she was like, we gotta get you a treadmill. And so she got me a treadmill and I got a really good one. Like a, uh, it's behind me. It's covered up with my son's pictures, but it's a, uh, Proform 5000. Uh, and when it came out, it was top of the line. You know what I mean? And you could, with the interface that's on there, you could be running on a trail and it changes the elevation. So it was just like a spaceship to me. And then I fell in love with the treadmill. It was weird. Uh, and all my friends confirmed my obsession with the treadmill was weird too. And I ran a marathon. My first, hey, I'm going to run 26.2 miles as fast as I can. That was my, this was my first time. And I was like, I'm going to do it on the treadmill. And I ran, I ran the half marathon. I got off, changed my shoes. And, but it, it gives you 10 minutes if you press pause. So I pressed pause, got off, changed my shoes and then jumped back on, press play. And this whole time I had my watch going so I could, you know, be true to it. And I finished the marathon. And I remember thinking I was sitting down there on my weight bench after I finished the marathon. Like I did it in like a nine and a half minute pace, nothing crazy. And I was just like, man, I could probably do that again. Compared to, in relation to July 25th, 2019, when was this? Your sober date. This was, this would have been late August. So, <laughs> so a month after beginning running again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Just uh-huh. clarifying here. You finished and thought I could do that again. Yeah, I could do it again. I was like, but maybe a little slower. And, but I was like, well, okay, we'll leave this as a day. And then. I had followed this Facebook page, uh, Facebook page called East Coast Trail and Ultra uh, Facebook Runners, and I posted on there boastfully. You know what I mean? Like, I ran a treadmill marathon. <laughs> I'm cool, you know. And I posted it on there, and everyone just filled my thread up with p- pictures of them running like a hundred miles, fifty miles, and I was nothing. And I was like, what? And then someone tagged me in the Dreadmill 100. Uh, which is a that sanctioned race that I was talking, sanctioned race that I was talking about uh, on um, earlier, and right then and there I signed up for it. I signed up for it, and it was about a year ago or so. Yeah, I had over a year to train for it. That what, what you know, so I started training on the treadmill and running, and uh, I ended up about halfway through that build on the treadmill. So this was my idea. I. I went out after that marathon and I trained and trained and trained and I went and did a 50 K on the road with like, I think it ended up having like 2,500 feet of gain. So it was relatively hilly. Um, I want to almost said flat, but I got to think of what road runners think of. So that's hilly. And I did it in an eight and a half minute pace. And I was like, well, dude, 70 more miles, eight and a half minute pace. I could win. I could win this race and win that free pro form. Cause if you win, you get a free pro form 5,000. And so my math was, hey, take that 30 miles you did, do it for another 70, you're in. You just got to train for a year to do that. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I uh, ended up just like running my calves off. I, I had to stop running for like two months. I was so overtrained and injured. And we ended up moving about three hours north. So I'm getting closer to the mountains. I was south of Atlanta and now I'm going north of Atlanta. I'm getting closer to the mountains and real trails and I meet some some trail runners and they show me, uh, this, this segment, uh, Strava segment, uh, in town and it's a half mile 
but 650 feet of gain in a half mile. It's like a 28, 28% grade. And they were like, this is, you know, the crazy place. You know, if you can do five, 10 repeats on here, you know, you can go out and do pretty much any trail race. And, uh, it, we, we started the cornbread crew. It was me, my buddy, uh, Phil, Sketch, Troy, Joe, just a bunch of us that would meet up and just do repeats on this thing because we didn't have mountains to climb. And we started the cornbread crew. And then I remember my buddy, uh, his name is Sketch, like you would sketch. And he went out and did a 24-hour challenge on the, on the dang thing. And it was just crazy to see what someone said was close to impossible just become like a training, a fun run for us. And so my love for the treadmill started to kind of go away. My love for the mountain started to arise. And, but I was like, hey, I signed up to this treadmill race and I decided to do, you can do the race on any day in the month of December. My brother, Edgar Flores, was shot and killed on December 13th. So I said, when the clock, when the clock strikes, you know, midnight on the 12th and goes zero, zero, one, on the 13th, I'm going to start running. I'm going to be done with 100 miles before the day's over for my brother. And so I already had that. I had to train for it. I couldn't. My newfound love for the mountains had to wait. I'm going to pause you again. Sorry, I'm going to mm-hmm. pause you again. Is this December of 2019 or 2020 now? Yes. So twenty twenty. So the, the race, the Dreadmill was signed up for to be raced on December 13th, 2020. Okay. So you've been at it for a year and a half now. I've been at it for about a year and a half, just like training. Um, I, I st- about half of that time was spent at the old house south of Atlanta, just putting in flat road miles and running on the treadmill like a psycho. And then the other half was spent meeting these trail people, learning the ultra community. I remember someone said, hey, I'll come pick you up from your house to, to take you to this trail meet. I was a homicide detective. I'm like, you're going to, you don't know me. You're going to pick me up and let, and you're going to drive and I'm going to have free hands. I could like kidnap you. <laughs> and, but I didn't obviously. And that's good. <laughs> I learned the, uh, the looseness and happiness and freeness of, of the ultra trail community, man. And, uh, that everyone just hopes someone's not a murderer basically. Uh, <laughs> I just kidding, but I did. Cause yeah, you know, so, some of them have to be statistically. They're on the AT. It's happened. They're on the Appalachian Trail. There's stories and then in case files for sure. Yeah. Mm. That's why I stay off that creepy place. Um, but um, uh, so, yes, a year and a half of training had gone by just but I'm talking that training where that guy was like, hey, I'm going to multiply this eight minute pace by 100 miles. Just naive, dumb training, just running myself into the dirt mm-hmm. and. Those people caught wind. They're like, you're running a hundred mile treadmill. Well, I think it's going to be harder than you think, blah, 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 which it was. And the date came. The date of December 13th, 2020 came and it was time to run this race. And I remember it was just like every podcast, every Instagram live, anything important that I do, everything was perfectly planned until 15 minutes before the race. I found out uh, my watch needed an update. The treadmill was doing something, and then I was getting on the treadmill with like a minute to spare, freaking out. And uh, so just like this, when I started the podcast for you, everything should have been good, but of course, everything needed updates. And I get on it, and I start running, and I remember having the feeling of like, dude, I wasn't ready. I'm not ready. Like, that was too rushed to get on the treadmill, but here I am. And I had um, a big poster with my brother Edgar's pictures on it. 
and uh, uh, my detective badge that I lost, I, I lost. They let me. They let me keep it. I put it on the um, that poster, and I grinded it out, and I ran the first fifty miles in un, in like nine and a half hours. So I was on a good good pace. I was trying to go sub twenty, and I was on a good pace to still do that if I declined a little. And at mile, oh, I began to use P brakes too much. Because I didn't have a, right, this is, this is going to get graphic. I didn't have a bathroom in the basement. So I had a camping toilet, which was a five gallon bucket with a seat that you clip on top mm-hmm. and a trash mm-hmm. bag inside. And so my wife's job was to get rid of that and make sure I had a clean one. And so I would go sit on this thing. Bless her heart. Yeah. Everything I hear about her, this woman's a saint. Dude, she's hardcore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> see, she, uh, so I would sit on this little, this little bucket just for too long, peeing. Why am I sitting down? You know what I mean? And I sit on this bucket. And then so around <laughs> mile 60, I start realizing, okay, that I'm not going to be able to hold this pace. Like I'm, I'm mentally dying here and physically. And then mile 70, mile 70 is very detailed for me because I was laying on the concrete floor of my basement. It was cold and I was contemplating quitting. I was literally contemplating turning the treadmill off and going to sleep. And my wife came over to me and she sets a manila folder on my chest and I pick up the folder and it says for mile 50 or after. And I open the manila folder and it's just news clippings of Edgar and like me carrying, you know, saluting his coffin and just dude, <laughs> everything she I did. did that? She put she that together. She put it together and had it waiting. We're having her on the podcast next. <laughs> yeah. Stephanie Hamilton. That's her name. Stephanie with an F man. She's uh. I can't, I really can't talk. I need five hours to talk about her, but she hands that to me. I look, I flip through it and just seeing it, like flipping through it. I got off the floor. Um, and I asked her, I was like, can you sit in that chair? Can you sit next to me on this treadmill until I'm done? Because I'm going to have to walk. And I was like, I cannot run anymore. My leg, I didn't know my, my entire, uh, my patella was ruined. <laughs> um, and she said, yes, I'm going to sit here. She went and got like our blankets, coffee. She got her own little aid station. And she sat there for 30 miles while I ran. Well, ran. I walked as fast as I could on the treadmill. And I did the math. She confirmed it. And we said, I can walk this and finish in 24 hours. I can walk the rest of this as fast as I can. And when I say walk, I mean at like a 13, 30, 14 minute pace. And... The good thing about the treadmill is that it is easier than the road. When you lift your foot up, the belt goes under. So there is some help there. Um, and I, I ended up finishing. So I ended up finishing the 100 miles in 23 hours and I believe five minutes. But at the beginning of the race, my treadmill and all the Christmas lights and crockpots I had plugged in blew the circuit breaker when I was two miles in. And I didn't get a picture. So morally and for not only for morally but for the race i had to get a picture of that two mile segment that was missing and so at the end i had to do two more miles and that uh that would that pace was just ridiculous that's just the worst (laughs) (laughs) my overall submitted pace or submitted race time and i explained to them the discrepancy with the circuit breaker and whatnot was 23 hours and 25 minutes i did it you know what i mean for uh for edgar and uh Wow. I wasn't able to walk 
I wasn't able to run for for like a month. I wasn't able to walk without help because I had just completely like when you look down at my like if you look down at your your quad that teardrop the VMO muscle was like had striations of purple going off. It was just like murdered, and uh, so I had to let my leg completely heal, and which led me. This is so crazy, which led me to walk a race I had previously signed up for. And I met a guy. Because you wouldn't skip it. I wouldn't skip. I had to do it. I had signed up for it. So I typed, I taped my leg and I showed up to it and I walked the race at a 14 minute pace and he ran it at a 14 minute pace, right? His name's Brogan. And we became friends because we were right next to each other. And great, this kid's running and I'm walking and we became friends and he Bracken was at Tennessee Mile. Mm-hmm. I remember the name. The person who r- ran as fast as I was walking went to Tennessee Mile and threw down over 50 miles out there a year later. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so when people look at my timeline and they're blown away, I'm like, that is crazy. But I look at Brogan's timeline and I'm like, where's he going to be a year from now? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, uh, that was Dreadmill. That was the big the big one. That was the hardest to this day. I've ran 200 milers. I've been in the mountains for 30 hours awake nonstop at Cruel Drill 100. That 100 miles on the treadmill in the basement was the hardest thing that I've ever done. And, and the closest I've ever got to quitting since I quit Special Forces that day when I was in the swamp. And uh, I've kind of brought that mentality and that standard into all the races I register for now. And it's kind of crappy for me because I got to stand up to my word. Um, but like when I began the fierce dragon 200 miler, 11 miles in, I felt my IT band start going. And it was a direct result of the effort I put in at Tennessee mile. I wasn't ready. A month time was not ready. I wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. And, but I remembered the standard that I preached on my Instagram and podcast. And I said, I have to stay in this fight. And I thought about, you know, how I wanted to be pro, but I wasn't pro and I don't have a season to throw now. And so for the people that follow me wanting to see someone stay in the fight, this is their opportunity. This is my opportunity. And so almost like that last 30 miles of treadmill, I had to make that decision at mile 11 of Fierce Dragon. And by mile 80, my IT band had become such an or become such an issue that my speed had declined and I was able to finish the race in 113 hours, but my goal of 86 hours, that was out the window at hour 11 or mile 11. But because I preached the standard, I had to stay in the fight. You know what I mean? And all of that stems from Dreadmill 100 and um, the lifestyle that I lived before entering this community, you know, trying to survive, staying in it. We are used to tracking people on social media. And one of the trends, the like that string that kind of flows through people's personalities and stories is that the louder they talk about their preparation before a race, oftentimes the more likely they are to not finish that race. Where someone gets on a kick of, I'm going to prep for this ultra, and I did this today, and I did this, and tomorrow I'm doing my big run, and then ultra comes, and it's it's 100, and they DNF at 60, or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, I didn't know you, other than what I saw you in Tennessee, but then I started following you, and you're just daily posting about what you're doing and what your mindset is, and because I don't know your backstory, I'm just hearing that this guy's saying something loudly, 
And I, man, I really hope he's not building it up for this big crash afterwards. <laughs> he doesn't finish. I didn't understand that that wasn't an option. Yeah. That you, you, you showed some of those traits of I'm being upfront with everyone. Here's what I intend to do. Because you're one of those people that you put your goal out and you say, I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm going to go try to set this record. Yeah. And I know it might be crazy, but usually people who put it out there, they're needing to put it out there so that they have their motivation. So listening to this story today, it's it's funny how some of the the judgments I passed about what could or couldn't happen in some of your upcoming races had no merit in real life because I didn't understand your backstory. Dude, I appreciate I appreciate that so much because it's um in the beginning. I got a lot of deer in headlights. I got a lot of, um, when I said I was going to train for the Cruel Jewel 100, it has 33,000 feet of gain in it. That was coming off of the treadmill. It was my only ultra marathon, my only 100 miler. People thought I was insane when I said I wanted to do it in sub 30, which I was. I was the person standing in front of them saying, I want to run Cruel Jewel 100 in under 30 hours, could not do it. But the person in front of them knew that they could train to do it. And that's how I look at races. So when I talk about this treadmill world record, it is so outlandish for this individual right here to think that he can run 75 miles a day for seven days straight and to be a world record holder. What I look at is the next almost two years I have to dial in. I can take that obsession I had from my rebellious life, I get to take all that and I'm going to dial it in on breaking this world record. And that's why it sounds crazy to everyone else but me and my wife. My, it doesn't sound crazy to my wife. My wife is like almost like, oh, crap. Now we got to deal with this, this psycho <laughs> achievement. And so I really, really appreciate you putting that way, Bracken, um, because I've never even thought of it in that way until you just said it. Um, there is a difference between setting a standard and, and keeping that standard. And that's why I'm not afraid to call my shots because let's say I said, I'm going to go sub 30 at cruel jewel 100. That puts me at the halfway mark at like one and one o'clock in the morning. Most people would say that was insane. And they're like, you're going to ruin your race. You're going to blow up. My mindset was, dude, I'm halfway at 2 a.m. The people who are taking it easy aren't even a third of, you know, they're not even close to me. So I could walk, I could crawl to the finish. I'm not one of those people whose goal time goal went out the window. So the buckle goes out the window. If my time goes out the window, then I'm going to bring it in dead last with the person whose goal was the only to finish. And I haven't lost. Did I meet my time? No, but I've just met somebody who I never would have. And they got to meet a front runner, so on, so forth. And I don't, so yeah, so another instance, Georgia Jewel 100. I wanted to run sub 22 hours. It was clear at mile 35 that wasn't going to happen. So we said sub 24, let's go. And then I attacked that just like it was the 22-hour goal. And after the race, I was so ecstatic about breaking the 24-hour goal. I had literally forgotten about the other one. I'm talking like an hour or so after the race. I had people saying, oh man, you were so close, blah, blah, blah. And they were the only reason that I remembered that I didn't break the original goal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. How many of these things have you done already? Ultras. You're just listing these off and I'm trying to think about doing them in the recovery and the training. And I'm starting to 
struggle to find the time to do all this. Yeah, it was bad. So um, me wanting to uh, pursue profession in coaching, what I would say right now is look at my ultra sign up and do not do that <laughs> because I was racing too much. Running is one thing, but I was going out there with the mindset of pushing my body to its limits almost every month. And so how many I had done, I started. Yeah. So official races I've done probably about five fifty Ks. I've done one official 100 K and I've done three 100 milers. Tennessee mile was the 24 hour event. So one 24 hour event and then one 200 miler. So I've done well, about 15 of them and equally spaced besides that 200 miler that's hanging out there by itself. <laughs> so all of those in roughly two, two and a half years, we'll call it. Yeah. You, you mentioned that the 100 miles on the treadmill was still the hardest thing that you've ever done. Now you're building some credibility there with these other races. So you have perspective. <laughs> and then you thought that was so miserable that I'm going to do 575 miles on the treadmill. So obviously you either love yourself or you hate yourself. Yeah. Probably a mix of both, right? Um, what is what is the appeal? What is the draw to you? Like how can you how can you help somebody understand this that doesn't understand this? Should yeah. Try me. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um I'll put it in perspective for um my wife a year ago. She was running. She was she was training to run an ultra marathon. She trained for and successfully completed a 50K. And she, right after that, she rolled her ankle bad, like grade three, purple all the way up to the knee. Like, I, I've, I don't know how you did that, is what I said to her. And she couldn't run anymore. And over the year, I watched her continue to live her life as successfully as a mother, a, a wife, and as a, a co worker at work. But I saw something missing and it wasn't necessarily running, but it was the pride she had in herself every day when she came home from running. And I could have, I would relate that with the pride someone would have when they finish their hour of guitar practice or piano practice or their hour of whatever practice investing in themselves. And so that I've watched her decline in that, in that way. And then just recently, she started hitting the trails again. Her ankle's good. She's been doing ankle mobility with me, you know, iron ankle stuff. And she uh, she's out on the trails again. And she's, she's coming home, you know, just completely different person. And for her, it's the trails. It doesn't have to be like that for everybody. Um, and for me, it is pushing myself to my limit. And then when I reach that limit, Spartan kicking myself right over that line and seeing what happens. I want to see what happens because I know that I'm not going to die. Essentially, you know, um, I'm not, if my life, I can never walk again. I have ran enough and I have done enough that I believe just getting into the literature alone would allow me to be a great ultra marathon coach one day. And I can rely on that. So if I run 525 miles and I can never run again, I'll take that. I'll put that on my Instagram. Hey, world record holder and coach. <laughs> and I'll never run again. But so my continuous pursuit to see how far my mind and body can go is addictive. But I have found a healthy balance, man. I have found a healthy balance between that pursuit, the pursuit to be the best father in the world and husband. Because 
I was once pursuing being the best runner in the world and father, and I was. Everyone knew me as the best runner and father, but no one knew me as a good husband. I'd put my wife on the back burner, man. But today, it's all balanced, and I'm just, I say it all. So I went out and just recently did a 34-mile self-supported effort through some of the most rugged terrain around here, and I'm talking filling up a filter to squeeze and refresh my water. I ran away with 15 goo and 11 honey stingers. That's all I had. And as I was coming into the last mile, I had a cry ball, if you know what, if you understand what that is, in my throat. My eyes began to tear up. No one was around. There was no cowbells. There was nothing. But every roadway I'd crossed in the past nine hours, I thought about stopping and calling my wife and telling her, hey, better not today. But I didn't. And since I was entering Vogel State Park, having completed what I said I was going to do, I was proud of myself to a level that I can't, eat, I can't really put it, articulate. And I almost made a video, but I thought it would come across too cocky. And I try not to make videos when I'm all amped up from a run. And I said, uh, and I wanted to say, go out and make yourself proud because I promise you there's no feeling like it in the world, including heroin, Oxycontin, and any other thing you can put in my system. And I stand by that today, man. That is what I chase. I chase being proud of myself for good things. And I chase that what comes with that is just pride in life, man. My kids look at me. They see that you're going out running more because you didn't win that race. My son told me that. You're running more because you didn't win that last one because they were at a finish line. They said, hey, daddy, you said you were going to be first. But I saw another daddy come across the finish line before you. Mm-hmm. And it just compounds into my entire life. And it seems selfish and insane. And it, and in, in a way it is. But it's my way to have a purposeful life, man. And a purpose-driven life like this, it just get I don't, bro, I'm on fire every day. You know I mean? I have bad days for sure. I make tons of mistakes. I cuss at my kids when I shouldn't. And, and I yell at my wife. And, you know, I'm the farthest thing from perfect. But Every single day, I try to be better than I was the day before. And with that mindset, it's like you can fail, but you can't fail too hard when you're trying. <laughs> so it's a pride thing. It makes you proud of yourself. I mean, not pride yes. for like an ego, but pride within like an yeah, intrinsic self-worth. Absolutely. It can be very much mistaken for being, con- being conceited or lacking humility or having too much pride for sure and i can fall into that with a good with a victory at a race i've recently gone back and looked at my posts following good rate runs and I've, i see patterns that i don't like you know what i mean oh i was i did good at that race i was a little cocky in my posts following for you know and i don't that's not the person i want to be you know what i mean so it's a never-ending search to be proud but not to but not to <laughs> you know what i mean it's crazy well, I'm not going to be able to add anything to this. That that kind of like crescendoed this entire thing. I wanted to talk to you about your training itself. Yeah. I love some of the knee and quad bulletproofing stuff you do. Oh, yeah. I wanted to talk about your coaching, but I want to do it justice. So I think we need to chat again at some point. But for today, I'm happy. Bro, I hear you. People listening got everything that they absolutely needed out of this conversation as is. That's how I feel. And it's heavy enough that I don't want to be like, and now let's talk about our VMOs. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree, man. Let's roll on out here with you clearly have, we always ask people like, who do you have to thank a sponsor or whatever? But like you have 
more <laughs> gratitude than the average runner. So roll us out with who you have to thank that allows you to do what you're doing right here today. All right, man. Yeah, I've said her, I said her name a million times already. Stephanie Hamilton, my wife, my rock, my anchor. When my sails are empty, she fills them up and keeps me going, man. Uh, first and foremost, her. Um, she's the only person who knows every single, all those um, bad things about me that I'm talking about. She lives with, it takes a certain crazy person to do what I'm doing. She lives with the negative aspects of what everyone else sees. <laughs> so thank you to my wife. Um, next to her, my sons for the same reasons, man. They give me power during my 200 miler. Uh, I would go up to them. I'd kiss their forehead. I'd say, give me your power. And they'd give it to me. And um, I have to. This is, this is not a sponsorship plug. This is not me telling you to go buy this item but salty britches the community that surrounds that company amy the owner has had faith in me since i was since before dreadmill 100 she's been you know with me you know what i mean and had faith in me made me an ambassador when you know i had nothing on her other ambassadors and Luckily, the crap, the lube is awesome too. And it, uh, mm -hmm. well, so it's not even a lube, it's a barrier. It's, it, I put it on my feet before my socks, I put it in my groin area, and I do these races. I finished Fierce Dragon 200 with not one hot spot, not one blister. Okay, sorry, I had a few blisters on my heel, but no rubbing, chafing hot spots due to this. This this salty britches, man. I sang their praises after Tennessee. I broke yeah, my own dude. rule and I tried something new on race day. I opened the package and looked at it. And I thought this isn't coming off. All right, I'm rolling with it. This it's is legit. Thick. This stuff's thick. Yeah. It so salty britches and exoskin, man. X. We talked about exoskin bracken when you were running. I because I saw your fancy shorts and I was like, dude, what are them things? And uh, exoskin, man. I just ordered like three more pairs of shorts and a couple pairs of socks uh, for my, for this year. And, uh, it's all I run in. I haven't, I have no reason not to, cause I don't chafe when I wear exoskin socks and shorts and put that lube on or the salty britches on before, you know, other than that, I'm going to give a blanket statement to the cornbread crew, specifically Phil Heath, who picked me up. He was the guy, the crazy guy who picked me up, uh, from my house who didn't know me. Um, <laughs> The entire past, the Torch crew, who was a, who was a running uh, club around here, who motivated me to come out and do a time trial with them and have just been a part of my growth. And literally just if I've met you, if you've messaged me, if you've asked me for help, you are the what gets me out of bed every single day, man. Um, Bracken, uh, Kirk, dude, you guys, you asked me to be on your podcast. Just dude, I, yesterday, I was blown away. I was like, heck yeah, I cannot believe someone wants to talk to me, man. It's humbling, and I love all you guys, and I love this, this the running and fitness community, man. I'm thankful for every bit of it. Thank you, Justin. What, what you bring to this community is unique and infectious and very much real. So thank you for all of it. Absolutely, brother. We'll talk again soon for sure. Yes, we will. Appreciate it, Justin. There will be a part two. All right. I'm looking forward to it, but we'll get in. Yeah, we'll get into the training because we got to talk about the knees. <laughs> we got to. Got to talk about the knees. All right, fellas. I'm going to go. Uh, I think the, the car's pulling up now, so we're perfect timing. All right. Go enjoy them. All right, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.